This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Well, it's a pleasure to be back here. Um, how many of you were at my previous lecture a couple of years ago? Okay, fair number of you. I won't be covering too much of the same ground, so hopefully that won't be too repetitive. One of the main themes I tried to bring across in that lecture is we have this very strange pattern in the United States. In Western countries, we have something that is unlike any other mammals in the history of this planet. We have a completely different pattern of disease. Probably very few people in this room have trouble with scarlet fever. Probably very few people in here have trouble with malaria or dysentery. Probably very few people here have liver flukes or intestinal parasites. You're not like any mammals that have ever walked around on this planet. We have this luxury in westernized society of having extremely different sorts of diseases. We don't have diseases of poor nutrition, of poor hygiene, with the exception of AIDS, with the exception of tuberculosis. We don't really have problems with infectious diseases anymore. We have totally different kinds of diseases now in the West, which is to say we live well enough and we live long enough to get diseases where we slowly accumulate damage over time. And this is something completely different from our ancestors. It's completely different from people living throughout the developing world. And it's certainly different than non-human patterns of disease. We have these totally crazy diseases because we don't get normal mammalian diseases. 100 years ago, turn of the century, what did we get sick with? What did we die from? The flu, pneumonia, tuberculosis. If you were female and you wanted to do something very risky, you got pregnant in 1900. Leading cause of death for women between ages 20 and 40. And hardly any of us get sick with those diseases anymore. Instead, we have these completely strange diseases that have never existed before on this planet in any sort of common number. We have cancer. We have heart disease. We have Alzheimer's disease. We have adult onset diabetes. We have diseases that are unheard of amongst hunter-gatherers in the middle of the Kalahari Desert, diseases that were unheard of in our great-great-great-great-grandparents. We have diseases where we slowly accumulate damage over time. This is a very different way of getting sick. This is a very different pattern of disease, and this is a very different way in which scientists now think about disease. What we've come to realize is when we look at the diseases that get us sick now, these are diseases that can either be caused by or be made worse by stress. And this is a very different way of getting sick. An example, 10,000 years ago, you were some 20-year-old hunter-gatherer running around the savanna, and you made a mistake. You ate some reed buck that was riddled with anthrax. The medical outcome of that would be absolutely clear. You've got a 48-hour life expectancy. It kills you 100% of the time. These days, you're a 20-year-old, and you make a medical mistake. 
you decide that eating a lot of red meat and a lot of cholesterol and a lot of fat is a good idea and having a couple of drinks a day is okay. And these days, the medical outcome of that is not at all clear. Maybe you'll be dead by the time you're 50 years old or maybe you're gonna be running marathons when you're 90. And there's lots of things that come into that difference having to do with your psychological makeup, the sort of society in which you live, the psychological variables that you go through life with. These stress-related diseases are very, very different kinds of diseases. These are diseases that have far less to do with vaccines than they have to do with how we live our everyday lives over our entire lifetimes. This is a very different way of getting sick. Now, one of the themes with stress-related disease is if you study this subject, you're absolutely astonished any of us are still alive because there's an amazing number of ways now in which stress can make things worse. We're 50, 60 years into thinking about ulcers as being caused by stress or high blood pressure being caused by stress. We now recognize reproductive problems are caused by stress. Your immune system can be suppressed by stress. You can have damage to your nervous system as a result of chronic exposure to stress hormones. And we're beginning to think that has something to do with why some of us age spectacularly and some of us don't and why some of us are more likely to get Alzheimer's disease than others. That's a whole new realm in which we think about stress-related disease. Basically, if you're a stress physiologist, it seems like a miracle any of us are still walking around because everything can go wrong with stress. Let me give you an example of the absolute epitome of stress-related disease. You can't get better stress-related trivia than this. A disease called alopecia areata. Anyone heard of alopecia areata in here? Okay, lots of you. Alopecia areata comes in a different, a number of different forms. One version is an autoimmune disease. Another one appears to be hereditary. But there's one version of alopecia areata where you get so incredibly stressed by some sort of major trauma that over the next two to three days, your hair turns white and it falls out. This really happens. This really, this happens once in the lifetime of a dermatologist. You talk to dermatologists and they've read about it in the textbooks, but this is a real disease, stress-induced alopecia areata. You can't imagine anything more bizarre happening to you with stress. Look at all the different things that can go wrong. You get stressed, your blood pressure goes up, you have digestive problems, you've got reproductive problems, you get flatulent, you've got memory problems, your brain gets damaged and your hair falls out. How is it any of us are still alive? What's very striking is when you study stress-related disease, nobody has to be convinced anymore of what people spent the first 40, 50 years in the field doing, which is finding out stress can make you sick, stress can make certain diseases worse. Everybody knows this by now. What people in the field really have to understand now is why do only some of us get sick in the face of stress? Why do some bodies and some psyches deal with stress better than others? What are the mechanisms that explain why some bodies are so vulnerable to stress-related disease? Because that's absolutely critical to understand why some of us age gracefully and successfully and some of us don't. It has everything to explain about individual differences in all of these diseases that are common in the West now. Why do some bodies and some psyches deal with stress better than others? That's what I'm going to talk about today. Okay, suppose you want to study that subject. What does psychological makeup, what do individual differences have to do with your body's vulnerability to stress-related disease? How do you study something like that? Okay, you decide, let's study that in a human. 
that's a good idea. Humans are psychologically complex, that sort of thing. You can study all sorts of absolutely fascinating things. For example, a link that has been shown between certain types of depression and certain patterns of neurological disease, certain types of depression, and certain vulnerabilities to types of cancer. Incredibly interesting stuff. On the other hand, God help you if you've got to understand the science that links having a depression and 20 years later getting cancer. That's impossible to study. There's no way you can monitor a bunch of humans and do a 20-year study follow-up through. For one thing, you know, you can't be a graduate student studying that. You can't spend 25 years in graduate school. <laughs> Nobody will fund that sort of study. It's impossible to understand in humans what are the intervening steps going on in somebody's body linking a psychological trait like depression, a trait like depressive disorders, and a certain disease outcome. Really tough to study. Okay, so you give up on humans. You decide, let's study this in rats, laboratory rats. Terrific. Animals running around in a cage, you can take blood from them, you can study them, you can control how stressful their world is, you can monitor how their body is working, you can monitor their disease outcome. Nice controlled environment. There's a problem there, though. The problem is basically, if a rat is a good model for your emotional life, you've got problems. Something's wrong there. You should hopefully be a little bit more complex than a rat. A rat is not capable of looking on the bright side. A rat is not capable of rationalization. A rat is not capable of just taking things in stride. Rats can't decide to look, turn the other cheek, that sort of thing. We're somewhat more complex than rats. It's very limited what you can do studying rats. Okay, so you give up on rats. Decide, let's study something in between. Let's study non-human primates. Primates, very complex animals socially, emotionally complicated animals similar to humans, and you can study them under certain conditions in captivity where you can take blood from them and monitor their diseases, things of that sort. Great, that sounds terrific. The problem with that, though, is unless you're really, really attuned to animal behavior, and unless you've got so much research funding these days you can't believe it, what you're going to be studying is a bunch of animals living in cages or a bunch of animals living in a small concrete enclosure, a bunch of animals whose behavior has nothing to do with what it was like back when they were in the Amazon or back in the Congo or in some rainforest or some grassland. You're studying animals whose behavior is often totally distorted by captivity. And that winds up being a very good model system for understanding humans in prison, for example. And it probably winds up telling us very little about ourselves. So that winds up being limited as well. So looking at all of this for almost the last 20 years, what I've been doing is trying to examine these issues, individual differences in vulnerability to stress-related disease, looking at these issues in primates, in non-human primates, but in a very different setting. Looking at primates in the wild, looking at a population of wild primates, baboons as shown here, asking what at first I thought was a clever question, but turns out to be a totally stupid one, asking the question, what does your social rank have to do with how your body deals with stress? What does your social rank have to do with your blood pressure, your cholesterol levels, things of that sort? What does it have to do amongst these animals? Okay, these are the animals I study, olive baboons. These are baboons running around the Serengeti, running around the grasslands of East Africa. And these are the, this is the site where I do my work, the Serengeti of Kenya and Tanzania. This is your basic Robert Redford sort of grassland out there where you've got big open savanna like this. And this is the perfect place on earth to study what I do for a very important reason. 
This is exactly where you want to live if you're a baboon. Fabulous place to live. The baboons here spend maybe three, four hours a day getting their day's calories. They don't work very hard. There's a very low rate at which they're predated by lions because they live in these big cooperative troops and nobody messes with them. The infant mortality rate amongst the baboons is lower than it is amongst their human neighbors. These guys have a very, very comfortable life. And there's an important implication of this. If these baboons only have to work three, four hours a day to get their calories, they have eight or nine hours of free time every single day to be absolutely miserable to each other. <laughs> That's important. Think about that for a second. None of us in here get ulcers because we have to have an axe fight with somebody over a parking spot. None of us are getting ulcers because we physically have to wrestle somebody in the Safeway for a can of food. We live in this very protected environment ecologically. We have this wonderful luxury where we can spend our time making up idiotic social stressors and falling for them. And these baboons are just like us. They're one of the very few species out there that are ecologically well off enough that they can devote the majority of each day to making each other miserable. <laughs> Overwhelmingly, if you were a baboon in the Serengeti and you were having a rotten time, it's because another baboon has worked very hard to bring that state about. They have social stress, just like us. They have psychological stress, just like us. These are very close relatives. Now, what's the social stress about? The centerpiece of this is the dominance hierarchy. You look at 20 baboons for a week, and what will be totally obvious is there's a number 1, there's a number 10, there's a number 20. There's a hierarchical ranking system, and the quality of your life is totally determined, to a large extent, by what your social rank is in lots of important ways. It determines who scratches whose back, who grooms who, and this is not just a social nicety, this determines how many parasites you're stuck with on your body. This has something to do with your health. What your social rank is has something to do with who mates with who, who gets to reproduce, who doesn't. It has something to do with whether you get the best food when an animal has been predated. It has to do with how hard you work for your food. Do you get to sit in the shade during the hot part of the day? If there's a lion around, you get the safest spot up on top of the highest tree. Social rank has everything to do with quality of life. Let me show you an example of just how powerful this dominant system is, this ranking system. Okay, what we see here is a middle-ranking male who is just predated, who's just killed an impala. This is hot stuff for a baboon. This guy has spent the entire morning hunting this thing. This is three days' worth of protein that he's about to get in the next 20 minutes. This is really a major accomplishment. He's very pleased with himself. Wonderful news, all of that. And you'll notice, along comes the number one ranking male in the troop, a few seconds later, and you'll notice our guy walks away without a fight, without an angry word under his breath. When the hierarchy is stable, these animals are smart enough to know their place. And this guy just walks away from it, walks away, and what you see here is number one winds up with a kill ultimately, exploiting the labors of the working class here, doing absolutely nothing at all for his meal, just ripping this off from this other guy. And the most striking thing about this is this is not nature bloody in tooth and claw. There's no fighting here. This is a system where these animals are smart enough to know the ranking system, and they simply know how it works. This is a very powerful organizing principle. So you look at these animals, and immediately what you wonder is, what goes into being high ranking? What do you have to do to attain high rank, and what do you have to do to maintain it? One of the major features, of course, is violence. 
These are extremely violent animals. Male baboons have canines the size that you would find in an adult male lion. These have the highest rates of aggression of any primates in the world, and they spend a lot of time fighting with each other. Deep canine slash on this male's shoulder, for example, you can see the blood there. A fight has everything to do with who gets the one number one position. Fighting is really important, and it's not just ritualistic fighting where they sort of lunge at each other ritualistically and then it's all over with. These guys really fight. And an example of this is shown here. This particular male, or what is left of him, is someone who had joined my troop two weeks before. And the best way to describe this guy is he had horrible political skills. <laughs> this guy was challenging baboons. He had no business going anywhere near. One night, a coalition of six of them ganged up on him, and this is what was left in the morning. Over the 18 years I've studied this anim these animals, the leading cause of death amongst male baboons are male baboons. These are close relatives. Okay, so aggression has a lot to do with it. But even more than violence, what you see in these animals is threats of violence. What you see are these ritualized gestures, something like what's called a threat yawn displaying your canines, and it's absolutely clear what this means to anybody who's watching. Look, you remember what happened last time. I've got the same teeth I had two weeks ago. Do us both a favor, don't push your luck. And most of the time, these are smart enough animals that they don't push their luck. Instead, they give a ritualized gesture of subordinates, aggression, that sort of thing. What you see far more than actual violence is threats of violence. Okay. So that has a lot to do with the dominant system. If all these animals were about was either fighting or threatening to fight, these would not be very interesting animals. Most of what they do, though, in terms of competition, are things that we would have to call psychological stress. And this is where they look real familiar to us. Now, what do I mean by psychological stress? If you go outside and you're gored by an elephant in the parking lot, you're going to have a stress response. Your blood pressure is going to go up. You're going to secrete stress hormones. There's no degree of psychological reframing you can do to prevent the stress response. You can't sit there and say, oh, good, I've always hated this shirt. This is a great excuse to toss it out now that it's covered with blood, that sort of thing. You're going to have a stress response if you have a physical stressor. On the other hand, one of the mysteries of humans is one person gets stuck on a slow bank line and their blood pressure goes through the roof, and the next person, this is a great chance to daydream. What is it that makes that psychological state a stressor for the first person and not for the second? What makes psychological events stressful? Because this is critical for looking at these baboons. A whole variety of studies have shown the following very clearly. For the same exact physical stressor, you are far more likely to raise your blood pressure, get a stress-related disease like an ulcer, far more likely to secrete stress hormones. You are more likely to get into trouble if, number one, you have no outlets. You feel like you can't have any sort of outlet for your frustrations. If, number two, you have no predictive information, no sense of when is it coming, how bad is it going to be, how long is it going to last, Number three, if you feel like you have no sense of control over what's going on. Fourth, if you interpret things as worsening. And fifth, if you're socially isolated. Classic studies showing these. Two rats get the same exact patterns of electric shocks. One of them is able to gnaw on a bar of wood as an outlet for his frustration. That guy doesn't get an ulcer. Two rats get the same pattern of electric shocks. One of them, 10 seconds before each shock, a little warning light comes on saying, here it comes. 
that rat doesn't get an ulcer. It's getting predictive information. Two rats get electric shocks. One of them can sit with a friend afterward. It doesn't get an ulcer. These are enormously powerful variables. And we understand this one all the time. For example, predictability. You're sitting there in the dentist chair. The dentist is drilling away. It hurts. You're miserable, all of that. And at some point, you say, are we almost done? And you know the difference between the dentist that says, twice more and we're finished, and the dentist that says, I don't know. Hard to tell with these things. Could be almost, it could be hours. Could be, we had one guy here for days to be that. And you know in a case like that, you have no idea how long you have to hold on for, for the same exact physical stressor. If you feel like you've got no predictive information, you're much more likely to get a stress-related disease. Stress is psychologically built upon no outlets, no control, no predictability, a sense that things are worsening, and no social support. That's the cornerstone of psychological stress. So look at the way these baboons psychologically stress each other. First example, we have here a very interesting state. On the far right is an adult male who's in a sexual relationship, a sexual consortship with a female right next to him. She is in heat. She is in estrus. She is reproductively fertile. He's been staying with her for the last three days. They're a couple. Okay, you will notice just happening to be six feet away on the other side of the bush is another large male who just happens to have been six feet away around the clock for the last three days. <laughs> just on the scene, never an inch closer, never an inch further. He's not fighting with the first guy. He's not even threatening him. He's just around. He's just constantly on the scene there. He's harassing the guy. This is incredibly costly stuff. The guy on the right hasn't slept in days. The guy on the left hasn't eaten. She's not having such a hot time with these guys either. <laughs> Extremely costly strategy. What you wind up seeing is 40% of the time, the guy in the far right picks up, can't take, can't take it anymore, walks away, relinquishes the consortship without so much as a threatening gesture from the other guy. This is not violence. This is not threats of violence. This is grinding psychological stress. And these guys are good at it. Another example. Here is one of the wild card strategies if you're a male baboon, which is get yourself a partner, get yourself a coalitional partner, another male who will back you up in a fight. And here we see two coalitions, two on the left facing off against two on the right, and this is a very tense situation. This is, if you don't know baboon body language, these are four very uptight baboons, and you don't get a coalitional partner very easily. This was a whole day's work. There's gestures that you do. It's a very, very ritualized format to get yourself a partner like this and here are these four guys this very tense situation and you can tell violence is about to break out and yes indeed a second later the fight begins and you can see these guys fighting there however let's see a little bit out of focus um, something's wrong here does anybody see a fourth baboon in this picture <laughs> there he is way up in the corner there on the left showing us a very important lesson these close relatives of ours which is frequently when the going gets tough they get the hell out of there and that's real important. What winds up happening is almost half of the time you go into one of these fights and your partner bails out on you. And of the times that that happens, almost a third of those times, the guy switches to the other team. Think about this. You're going into a fight that is life-threatening and you can't even predict or control whose side somebody is on. Talk about psychological stress. Next version of this. 
Here we have another one of those sexual consortships. The male in the middle is grooming that female who's crouching on the far right. Once again, that's one of those sexual partnerships there. And on the far left is a male harassing him. This time, much higher intensity than before. He's a foot away. He's threat yawning right in his face. And you know that guy in the middle. There's no way he can put up with this for a while without tensions boiling over. He can't take this any longer. And finally, the next second, yes, indeed, violence breaks out. That male becomes violent. He spins around, and he bites the female. <laughs> Very important lesson here, once again, from our close relatives. Often, when the going gets tough, you find somebody smaller to take it out on. Almost half of the violence amongst baboons is what is called displaced aggression. A big male loses a fight and chases a subadult male in frustration, who knocks an adult female out of a tree, who bites a juvenile female, who slaps an infant, all in 15 seconds. These are animals who, when things get bad, they look for somebody else to take it out on. And talk about psychological stress. You're sitting there minding your own business, bird watching or something, and somebody else is having a bad day, and suddenly with no control, no predictability, you have to pay the price. An extremely stressful psychological landscape. So when you look at these animals, it's not just aggression, it's not just threats of aggression, it's not just having big canines or lots of muscle or knowing how to fight, it's knowing which fights not to get into. It's knowing how to form partnerships. It's knowing when to stab a partner in the back. It's knowing how to deal with minutes of game theory, how to deal with affiliations that take months to form. This is a very complicated social landscape. And what occurred to me back in the late 70s when I started studying these animals was stress had something to do with it. And this was one of the first months I was out there looking at one of those sexual partnerships, a male in consortship with a female. This guy was being harassed by two other males. One of the harassers simply had no idea how to go about doing this. He was a complete clown at this. He would run in and threaten the guy, and the second the guy so much as glanced at him, he would panic and run half a mile in the other direction and go chase somebody and get out of his system and come back again and just completely discombobulated by this. The second guy was playing perfect chess. The second guy was circling the pair, and every hour he was tightening the noose a couple of yards, and he knew just how to do this, and by the end of the day, he had the consortship. And looking at that guy in that first month out there, it occurred to me that being successful in a society like this didn't just involve big canines and muscle and political skills and health and all of that, but it also involved having a body that dealt well with stress. And that's what I decided to go test. Did your social rank have something to do with how your body dealt with stress? That's what I wasted my first 12 years on, and I'll show you the answer to that, and then I'll show you all the ways in which something much more interesting is going on there. Okay, so how do you study this? Partially what you do is your basic Jane Goodall scene. You habituate these animals, and you can get to the point where you just sit around with them, and there's a whole science as to how to observe baboons and collect data in a way that's scientifically unbiased, and you spend most of your time doing that. The next thing you need to do is find a way to get blood samples out of these animals, take blood pressure, things of that sort. What you have to do is anesthetize these animals. And this is one frame taken out of a public television program a few years ago on my work, where in this one frame you may be able to see a white flash on that male's shoulder. That's the instant where a blowgun dart is blowing up in his shoulder, injecting him with anesthetic. Very complicated business doing this. Number one, you have to get an anesthetic that doesn't affect the hormones you're studying in the body. Second, 
you've got to dart everybody the same time of day and the same time of season because there's daily fluctuations in these hormones. Third thing, if you want to get a first blood sample out of a baboon that tells you what his nice, low, unstressed levels of hormones are like, you can't dart somebody if he's had a fight that morning. If he's had an injury, if he's sick, if he's mated with somebody, I'm going to show you cholesterol data in a while where I couldn't dart somebody if he ate breakfast that day. I had to dart them before they had breakfast, just like we do. You're supposed to fast when you get your cholesterol testing. And the same thing with these guys, so you can't get a blood sample if there's any disturbance. Next problem, you can't dart the guy if he knows you're coming. You can't get in your Jeep and chase the guy up and down the field all day long until he's exhausted and then finally you can dart him because he's going to be totally stressed by this. What you see here is a perfect darting in that this baboon was looking at my Kenyan research assistant up until a second before he glanced over as he heard me inhaling. There was no anticipatory stress. This is a perfect darting. In contrast, if you miss a guy and you blow up a dart two inches in front of his nose, you can't go near him for the next two weeks. There can't be any anticipatory stress. Finally, once you dart the guy, you've got to get a first blood sample out of him within a couple of minutes before levels of those hormones begin to change. Okay, so given all those constraints, about once every five years or so, things go wonderfully. And once you do that, you've got a baboon anesthetized there. And basically, you could do some of the exact same tests you do on us, taking blood, taking cerebral spinal fluid, tissue samples. You keep the animal anesthetized all day. You can construct a heparin drip there off an acacia branch, other high-tech sort of things like that. The same sort of clinical test you would do in a human. Eventually, the animal recovers overnight in a cage. The next morning, you release him back to his troop. You process the blood samples on the most miserably frustrating object in the entire universe, which is a hand crank centrifuge there, because the nearest electric outlet is 90 miles away. You get airdrops of dry ice once a week or so to keep the samples frozen, get them through customs with no problem, get them back to your lab, and you're all set. Okay, so that's what I do. Using that approach, over the years, what I've done is study lots of different hormonal systems in these animals, physiological systems, asking, are there differences depending on your social rank? And what I'll show you today, a little bit of data, concerns the one hormone. If you're only going to learn about one hormone in stress, this is the one to learn about. All of us have heard about another hormone during stress that's far more famous, adrenaline, adrenaline that increases your heart rate. This hormone is even more important. It's a class of steroid hormones that come from our adrenal glands called glucocorticoids. Glucocorticoids, another name for them is corticosteroids. We've all heard of the human version, which is hydrocortisone. Hydrocortisone, prednisone is a synthetic version of it, dexamethasone. This is the hormone you need to understand to understand everything about stress-related disease because it teaches you this very double-edged quality to the stress response. Under nice resting circumstances, you want really low levels of this hormone in your bloodstream. As soon as there's a crisis, you want a massive elevation of the stuff, and as soon as it's over with, you want stuff to go back to normal. Why is that? Because this is the perfect hormone to have in your bloodstream if you get stressed the way most animals do which is your zebra, a lion has leapt out, ripped your stomach open, and you've got 30 seconds to get away. A short-term physical crisis. These hormones are brilliant for dealing with that. They mobilize energy to your muscles. They increase your heart rate so you deliver that energy. They turn off digestion. They turn off growth. They turn off reproduction. All of the logic of that is obvious. 
you know, today a tornado is coming, this isn't the day you repaint your house. If there's a crisis going on, you don't worry about a long-term project, the lion is chasing you, ovulate some other day, grow tomorrow, do that sort of thing some other time, turn off everything that's not essential, shut down your immune system, you can make antibodies tonight, if there is a tonight, these hormones are great for saving your life if you deal with a short-term emergency. Just as clearly, though, if you get stressed the way we do, worrying about mortgages for 30 years and you chronically secrete this hormone, you get sick. Because if you chronically secrete it, it causes damage. If you constantly mobilize energy, you never store it. You're exhausted, your muscles waste away. If you constantly elevate your blood pressure, you're suffering from stress-induced hypertension. If you constantly shut off digestion, shut off growth, shut off reproduction, you're at risk for ulcers and colitis, you're at risk for osteoporosis, you're at risk for stress-induced amenorrhea, stress-induced impotency. Very clear lesson of this hormone, you want tons of it in your blood if you're dealing with a 30-minute crisis, and otherwise you want nice low levels. And it turns out that's exactly the pattern you see in a dominant baboon and a high-ranking male baboon. Here we split the troop up in half, and what you see are glucocorticoid levels. Cortisol is another name for hydrocortisone. This is the level of this hormone in the bloodstream, and you see the very first blood sample under resting conditions, the dominant males have much lower levels of the stuff in their bloodstream. If you're a low-ranking baboon, you secrete too much of the stress hormone. Along comes a stressful event, and what you see is the dominant animals can increase their levels faster than the subordinates, they mobilize the system faster, and when it's all over with, they turn it off faster. This turns out to be the pattern year after year in this troop, and I can show you data from other troops as well. Year after year, if you're a low-ranking baboon, you have more of this stress hormone in your bloodstream under everyday circumstances. This is not surprising at all. If you're a low-ranking baboon, everyday life is stressful. You sit there, you spend 20 minutes digging some piece of food out of the ground, anybody can take it away from you. No control, no predictability. You spend the morning getting somebody to groom you, anybody else can break it up. You sit there minding your own business, you could be attacked at any moment by somebody else having a bad day. All of the hallmarks of psychological stress. And not surprisingly, what you wind up seeing is in a whole bunch of different species, in primates, in rats, in mice, in wolves, in fish, and birds, the same thing pops up over and over again. Low-ranking animals have elevated levels of the stress hormone in their bloodstream. Okay, that's interesting. That's not very surprising. What would be interesting now is to say, okay, I just told you all those bad things the stress hormone does if you secrete too much of this. Do low-ranking baboons pay a price? Do they pay a price by constantly activating their stress system? And they appear to. Let me show you a couple of ways. Here's one example. Cholesterol. Cholesterol. We all know by now there's good cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and shown there something called apoprotein A1. That's the protein that makes up HDL cholesterol. And then there's bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and it's associated ApoB, here we see three different troops of baboons over a five-year period, high versus low-ranking animals. And what you see is, if you're a low-ranking baboon, you don't have as much of the good cholesterol in your bloodstream. And you don't have as much of the protein that makes up the good cholesterol. Is this due to diet? Is this due to genetics? Is this due to activity, exercise, control for all of that stuff? It's the stress hormone levels. The higher your levels of glucocorticoids in the bloodstream, the more you suppress the good cholesterol. 
and that's been known in humans for 30 years. This is showing this in these baboons. Okay, does that predict something totally crazy, like do low-ranking baboons get heart disease? I mean, that sounds totally berserk. These are animals running around the savanna. These are not couch potatoes. These are animals who were lean. They have no fat on them. They couldn't possibly get heart disease. It turns out they get heart disease. They get hardening of the arteries. They get fatty streaks in their heart. And what you see is it's the lower-ranking animals who are more at risk. So that's one problem. Here's another play in which they pay a price. Your immune system, the higher your glucocorticoid levels in your bloodstream, the fewer white blood cells you have in your circulation. That's why stress gets you sick more often. That's why you get the cold more often, get a cold more often when you're stressed. What we see here, two different troops of baboons in the Serengeti, high versus low-ranking animals, and the number of lymphocytes, the number of white blood cells, the lower your rank, the more immunosuppressed you are. And what I've been studying in the last few years is the lower your rank, the more likely a wound is to get infected, the longer it takes to heal it. They pay a price there as well. It turns out they pay a price in system after system. I can give you hours worth of lectures here as to how their heart works and their liver works and their gonads work. And it's always the same answer again and again. Totally different function depending on whether you are high or low ranking. And consistently, it's the low ranking animals who appear to be more at risk for stress-related disease. Okay, so what do we conclude from that? If you happen to wind up being a baboon, you want to be high ranking because you get all of the advantages in life, psychologically, medically, all that sort of stuff. Let me show you in the last few minutes here all the ways in which that's totally, totally simplistic all the ways in which things are much more interesting in these animals. It's not just rank. It's a lot more subtle stuff that comes very close to home for us. First important qualifier. When you look at all these variables, what psychological factors, social factors have to do with physiology, rank is important. But something else is even more important. It's not just your rank. It's the sort of society in which the rank occurs. What do I mean by that with a baboon? Okay, all of the data I've showed you so far comes from dominance hierarchies that are stable. What do I mean by stable? You look at number five in the hierarchy, and he's beating number six 95% of the time. And in turn, he's losing to number four 95% of the time. Totally stable, static, status quo system. On the other hand, if number five is beating number six only 51% of the time, they're just on the edge of switching places. In a stable hierarchy, 95% of the time, the dominant animal is winning, status quo, nobody's changing anything. That's all the data that I've shown you. In a stable hierarchy, it's the dominant animals who have all the psychological control and predictability, all of that. About every 10 years or so, though, there's a revolution. Somebody critical dies. Somebody critical leaves the troop or transfers in. Some coalition forms, some coalition falls apart. And for the next three months, all hell breaks loose and ranks are shifting every three hours. Everybody's fighting like crazy. Nobody's grooming, nobody's mating. Everybody's forming coalitions. They immediately fall apart. The mail isn't delivered. The trains don't run on time. The whole system becomes unstable. And what you see at those times is in the middle of a revolution, you don't want to be high-ranking because you're, you're right in the middle of the palace where they're shelling it. You're right in the middle of all the fighting. And what you see is, during those revolutionary periods, a very different picture. On the left, we see the nice, low, resting glucocorticoid levels of dominant males in stable hierarchies. On the right, we see the levels in the same exact individuals 
during those revolutionary periods, and up go the stress hormone levels. So you ask this question, what does your rank have to do with your stress hormone levels? The answer is, it depends what sort of society you have that rank in. You want to be high-ranking in a stable system, not in an unstable one. You don't want to have been the czar in the winter of 1918. That was not psychologically calming. Very clear answer to that. Lots of other ways to show this, but that's his first caveat. It's not just your rank, it's the society in which it occurs. Next variable, it's not just rank, it's not just society, but it's your personal experience of both. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Back to one of those unstable seasons, one of those seasons where a revolution occurred. Here's what happened in that season. This was about five years ago in one of these troops. Normally, male baboons change troops at puberty. And it's this very slow process. It's like going away to college. They spend two or three years on the edge of a new troop. Everybody ignores them or beats up on them. It takes them years to slowly get assimilated in. Very difficult process. Every now and then, though, you get a big, aggressive, muscular kid who transfers in and goes like a house on fire, absolutely crazy, and he takes over the troop in the first month. How come? Because as long as he's aggressive as hell, nobody wants to be the first fool to stand up to him and find out how tough he is. He gets a free ride as long as he's incredibly aggressive. So about five years ago, in one of my troops, in the middle of the summer, one of these males transferred in. And I just darted half the troop, and I was able to then dart the other half and look at the troop before and after this guy came in. And here's what things looked like. This was a male who we wound up calling Hobbes because he was short, nasty, and brutish, and Hobbes joined the troop. And what you see on top, on the far left, glucocorticoid levels before he joined the troop, middle column, the month after he joined the troop. Everyone was stressed. On the bottom, white blood cell measures. Before he joined the troop, afterward, everyone had their immune system suppressed. This was an incredibly stressful time. Two weeks after he joined the troop, I was able to dart him, and this is what his own profile looks like on the far right, the highest stress hormone levels of anybody in the troop, and the fewest white blood cells. What's the punchline? It doesn't come cheap being a bastard 12 hours a day. This guy was paying an enormous physiological price for this. For him, this was the most stressful time anybody was experiencing. Let me show you an even more subtle example of this. One of the things this guy did, which was really charming, was he preferentially targeted the females. He was attacking females left and right, presumably to impress the males with what a tough guy he was, so they wouldn't stand up to him. He was just attacking females all over the place. And what we see here is over the first two weeks after he joined the troop, how many times did he attack each female? And what I did after the end of those two weeks was dart those females and measure their levels of white blood cells in their bloodstream. How well were their immune systems working? And what you see here is this remarkable relationship. The more times a female was attacked by this guy, the more immunosuppressed she was. In this very dose-response relationship, how awful your life was was determining how suppressed your immune system was. And what we see here were females zero, the ones who were lucky, who were never attacked by him, and compared to the white column, what the profiles were like before he joined the troop, no difference there. So you ask this question, what are the effects of having this very aggressive male on the workings of your immune system? And the answer is, it depends. It depends. If you're lucky enough to have a good seat on the sideline watching all the action, it doesn't do anything to your immune system. It's how often your nose is being rubbed in it. 
It's not this abstract state of living in an unstable society. It's what your personal experience is of it. And we all know this, even in the worst of wartime, there's somebody out there making a fortune, black marketing penicillin, that sort of thing. There's all sorts of individuals for whom societally-wide stressful periods, they're not particularly stressed. They're doing just fine. It's not just your rank. It's the society in which it occurs, and it's your personal experience of it. Final variable, and the one that I think is most important, not just rank, not just your society in which it occurs, not just your personal experience, but number three, your personality. What do I possibly mean by a personality in a baboon? Amazingly enough, these guys have really strong personalities. These are smart animals who live a quarter century, and they have very strong individualistic personalities. Some baboons form coalitions with partners. Some never do. Some have non-sexual friendships with someone of the opposite sex. Others never do. Some play with babies. Others don't. Some, when they lose a fight, go and sulk. Some, when they lose a fight, go groom somebody. Tremendous personality differences. And a few years ago, we sat down and went through 15 years of behavioral data on these animals, and we tried to come up with as many different markers of personality as we could, and then we ran it against the physiology. And something very interesting came out of this. What I found was all of that wonderful physiology I've been telling you about, which you get if you're a dominant male in a stable hierarchy, it had nothing to do with being dominant. It was entirely attributable to a subset of dominant males with certain personality types. And you could be the highest ranking guy in the block, and if you didn't have one of these personality markers, you had just as terrible a physiology as number 20 in the hierarchy. It wasn't the rank, it was personality. So final obvious question here is, what kind of personality works for you if you're a baboon? And the embarrassing thing is, if I made a living being like an after-dinner speaker to baboons, teaching them about stress management, this is what you would tell a baboon to do. This is exactly how you should go about dealing with life stressors. This is what predicts it in terms of personality. We defined two different sets of variables which predicted a personality with nice low levels of these glucocorticoids. The first personality profile had to do with how males competed with each other. Here's what we found. Five different traits that predicted nice low levels of glucocorticoids or very high levels. First one, can you tell the difference between the big things and the little things in life? Can you tell the difference between neutral events and threatening events? What do I mean by this? You're a baboon. You're sitting there. You're minding your own business. Your worst rival on the planet shows up, sits down a foot away, and threatens you in your face. This is bad news. What do you do next? You get a vigilant defensive stance. You stop what you're doing. You get alert. You get stressed. That makes sense. In contrast, you're sitting there minding your own business, and your worst rival on the whole planet shows up and takes a nap 100 yards away. What do you do next? You should probably continue what you're doing because nothing exciting is going on. The pathetic thing is your average male baboon can't tell the difference between those two circumstances. Having your worst rival take a nap 100 yards away and you get totally crazy, you get agitated. Look at that guy right in my face. Can you believe he's doing that? He's just trying to irritate me. They get completely agitated. They can't keep up with what they're doing. They can't tell the difference between a neutral event and a threatening one. After you control for rank, if you can't tell the difference between the two, twice the level of glucocorticoids in your bloodstream. Everything's a provocation. I think what we've defined there is a baboon equivalent of type A personality. Next trait, 
If the guy is threatening you in your face from six inches away, what do you do next? Do you sit there and passively abdicate control and let him start the fight, or do you at least get a little bit of control in a bad situation? Do you at least start the inevitable fight? If you abdicate control, twice the level of glucorticoids in your bloodstream after controlling for running. Next variable, up to here. Once the fight has occurred, can you tell the difference between whether you won or lost? This sounds rather fundamental. But again, your average baboon can't tell the difference. They get just as crazy in the same way afterward, whether they won or lost. They can't even tell if life's improving or not. They can't tell if there's a good outcome. If you can go through a fight and you can't tell the difference between winning and losing, twice the glucorticoid levels in your bloodstream. Finally, if you have lost the fight, what do you do next? Do you go and mope by yourself, or do you displace aggression onto somebody else? And the unfortunate thing here is the baboons who displace aggression onto somebody else do much better. Okay, let's, let's get some spin control. Those who have an outlet for their frustrations. Look at this. Look at these variables. Can you tell the difference between the big and little things? If it's a big thing, do you at least get some control? Can you tell if the outcome is good or bad? And if the outcome is bad, do you at least have an outlet afterward? This is everything we try to teach people in stress management, and some of these baboons already are good at it. And the ones who were good at it were good at it back when they were kids. These are stable personality traits. This is a whole cluster that comes together as a package. And what I'm now seeing from these guys is the good personality profiles, the low glucocorticoid profiles, you can pick up those personality traits back when they're adolescents. And these are the guys who outlive everybody into old age. This is a predictor of successful aging. And this is just what we try to teach people. Tell the difference between the big and little things. Tell the difference between things you can control and you can't. These baboons just happen to be able to see glasses as half full. Some of the baboons come that way, and these guys do much better. That was one set of personality traits. The final set of traits is even more important for us to take as a take-home lesson. The final set of traits was the single most powerful variable I have ever found in these data. After you control for rank, after you control for all of these variables, you are much more likely to have very, very elevated levels of the stress hormone in your bloodstream if you're socially isolated, if you don't have friends. And amazingly enough, that is a scientific word to use when discussing baboons. That's not an anthropomorphism. Some baboons have friends. Some baboons will sit and groom all day long. The same sort of individuals, they sit in contact with them. If the other individual is having a bad day, they sit next to them. Friends is a perfectly valid term for baboons, and only about a quarter of male baboons are able to have friendships. And it's with females, not with other males. Males are business partners at best that they don't really trust. Females are the ones they have their friendships with. It's not sexual, it's platonic, they're just <laughs> friends. And there's only about a quarter of males who can pull this off, and those are the ones who do vastly better as well. And in this final slide, I show you this ma aggregate measure we got of social connectiveness. How often do you groom? How often are you groomed back? How often do you sit in contact with somebody? How often do you play with an infant? One equals the average level. More than one is more social. Less than one is socially isolated. And you can see this is after controlling for rank and all the other variables. Animals who are socially isolated stress hormone levels through the roof. And this is something that you shouldn't need a baboon in order to teach a human. And this is something you need baboons, you need rats, you need a human studies coming out your ears in order to teach to humans. This is an incredibly important variable. 
When you look in all of health psychology, when you look in all of behavioral medicine, when you look at the single most important risk factor for disease mortality, the most important one is make sure you don't make the accident of being born poor. Poverty is a huge predictor of disease, socioeconomic status, an enormous variable. After you control for that, the second biggest variable is social isolation. When you look at humans who are socially isolated versus socially affiliated, across the board for all diseases, a threefold difference in mortality rates. That's a bigger effect than whether or not you smoke, whether or not you're overweight, whether or not you have elevated cholesterol levels, and that effect is still there after you do the obvious logical controls. Maybe people who are socially isolated, they don't have a spouse to remind them to take their medicine each day. Maybe people who are socially isolated living alone, they just eat cold meals out of a can instead of a decent balanced diet. After you control for that stuff, what you find is a fact true for anybody who studies primates. Primates, including humans, are supremely social animals, and being socially isolated is one of the most aching stressors we can experience. What the studies show is that it can be a spouse, a significant other, a close friend, a group of friends, a community group, all of them are equally protective. And what the studies show is this is stupendously important as we get older. Because in one of the most horrible cliches, but one of the most accurate ones of aging, aging is far too often a time of life spent among strangers. And that's probably the most important take-home lesson I can give you here. Science is doing amazing stuff these days, cloning the human genome, transplanting organs, making artificial this and that. What is clear to me as a physiologist, and when I spend my time in the laboratory, that's the sort of high technology stuff that I do. As a physiologist, what's clear to me, the physiology of the system is nowhere near as important as the psychological and social factors. And probably the best take-home lesson at the end is, if some baboons can do this, we should be able to do this as well. So let me wish you good luck with your own stressors and stop at this point. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.